The War on Manhood, Part 2, in this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. And this week on the podcast, I am delighted to have with us Dr. Owen Strayan. Dr. Strayan teaches theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm delighted that he's now one of my colleagues, and we get to share uh, some time together. We get to talk about the scriptures, and we get to talk about life and culture and what's going on in the world. And uh, it's been a great privilege of mine since moving to Kansas City to uh, to get to know him a little bit better. And I'm so glad to maybe even introduce many of our listeners to the work of Dr. Strayan and the ministry uh, that he's provided. And today we're, we're going to continue a conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago on this issue of manhood. And it's amazing to me to see uh, the direction that we're headed as a culture relative to manhood, and not just simply the culture, uh, but I, I think the most concerning thing is the way in which the church is posturing themselves in this war that we would say on manhood, uh, almost uh, removing ourselves from biblical conviction or acting as though those convictions are are able to be compromised. And so I wanted to get Dr. Strayan, who's done a lot of work in this area, uh, to come and join us. Now, last time, what I mentioned was the APA guidelines, um, the American Psychological Association, in 2018, they produced a document. And in this document, it was the Guidelines for Counseling Men and Boys. And in this document, maybe one of the most shocking things to me, Dr. Strayan, is that uh, they were suggesting that sex is that which is assigned at birth, but gender is now something that's not in correlation to that. It's it's a non-binary view from the APA's perspective. Uh, they're seeing gender that's something that's absolutely a social construct. And, you know, the difficulty for me is this is not just a one-off for the APA. The APA is consistently uh, making statements about morality. And listen, they have to because what they're dealing with is anthropology. And so they're going to make statements about what they believe to be healthy uh, as it relates to anthropology, and that encroaches consistently upon biblical truth. And so today I want us to discuss maybe just uh, the, the beginning portion talking about gender. So in this document they describe gender as a social construct that's really just fluid based on environmental factors and what's going on around the person and, and not consistent necessarily with the sex that's given at birth. In my opinion, I would say that they're articulating a, a contrary morality that, in my view, also is symptomatic of the culture in which we live. Now, the question I want to ask you is, in what ways do you see the culture adopting the ideas that is so prominent of gender fluidity? Yeah, thank you, Dale. Thanks for having me on. I, I think there there are some areas, of course, where we have to sort out what it means to be a man and a woman. So let that be said. Different cultures have to handle these matters for sure. And yet we start as believers from the shore ground of Scripture. So we recognize, for example, in Genesis 1 and 2 that the Lord created all mankind in the image of God, he made them male and female. And then Genesis 2 zeroes in in verse 7 and 22 on God's creation of the man from the dust of the earth and his creation of the woman from the rib of the man. 
What that means, Dale, is that already we are not on the ground that you just rightly sketched out. Uh, we're not on. Uh, we we don't hold this view that gender is a construct. We hold the view that the body God gives you is constitutive of your identity, and that's not because we are hardcore traditionalists or politically conservative or something like this. We we happen to like uh, traditional American culture. We hold these views irrespective of the country we're in, the society we're in, the culture we're, we're finding ourselves in. All across the world, Christians hold this kind of view because of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because the Word of God in these chapters and all throughout the Scripture is communicating reality to us. So, as you said, we start from the opposite starting point from a group like the APA. We hold that gender is not a construct, that it is the very creation of Almighty God. You just did two very critical things to help us in our thinking. And the first thing was is that we're anchored to something totally contrary to anything that society would would drum up. And the second thing that you did was help us to see that these anchors are not dependent upon the flow of any culture or any political system or any traditional ideas, which is what most people are rebutting against. And so it's critical that we we describe Scripture as superseding culture, so it doesn't matter the time, the place, on planet Earth, and when during uh, history we see that. These truths remain regardless. And so that's helpful as a, a position of anchor. So for us, what do we see happening to the idea or to the concept of masculinity? Because certainly uh, the ideas that the APA is promoting uh, have uh, implications for what we believe about masculinity. So, so what do these ideas do to the concept of masculinity? Well, they take it apart from the very seams, and that's what we're seeing all around us today. Uh, If you want to be sort of on the front lines of elite secular culture today, you don't talk, of course, about a, you know, hard and fast understanding of manhood, you know, on the cover of your magazine or your your online site or on social media, you're broadcasting how you believe not in a fixed understanding of the sexes, but you believe in a fluid understanding of the sexes. And of course, that very much relates to manhood because we have, let's say in America, I know you have listeners from around the world, but let's say in this country, you do have certain understandings standings of manhood that in some form are connected to that biblical root that we were just talking about. Men are supposed to be tough. Men are supposed to step up when there's a a physical threat on the scene. Uh, Men, in broad terms, are supposed to provide. But what what gets you capital today, what gets you popularity and clicks and likes today, in broad terms in America, is not to say those kind of things, but to say, I'm deconstructing masculinity. It doesn't have any fixed meaning. Men are basically no different from women, and I'm part of this new vanguard of tearing down the stereotypes such that boys now, for example, an Atlantic writer uh, uh, wrote a very uh, big story about this a a year ago. Boys now are wearing dresses, for example. Boys now are wearing makeup. Boys now are carrying effectively purses. Uh, Boys now, you know, are pursuing homosexual relationships, and, and that's celebrated. These are all facets and features of this new deconstructed manhood that really is is creeping out all around us. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and uh, these are are things that we in the church have been called to stand as a guard and a pillar of truth against, and this is, I think, a critical moment for us 
in the church. So it's important. So we recognize the cultural pressure, if you will, or influx that we're seeing uh, trying to redefine masculinity or re-explain these issues of masculinity. Uh, I think it's important for us, maybe just briefly, so that we are all on the same page in what we mean when we talk about biblical masculinity. Just describe for us biblical masculinity and why that's so important for us as Bible-believing Christians that, that we don't waver on God's specific design for masculinity. Yeah, I continually go back to Genesis 2. Um, there's other texts, of course, to go to. We could talk for days about this concept, but I speak regularly at conferences and churches on this, and the first place I take people to is Genesis 2, because there you have the man distinctly made, and the Lord calls Adam in Genesis 2.15 to work and watch over the garden. So there you have that call to masculine provision, and you have the call to masculine protection right there, Genesis 2.15, a call, of course, that he is immediately going to fail in. Uh, He's not going to watch over the garden. And then later on in in Genesis chapter 2, you have the Lord's call to the man to hold fast to his wife, uh, verse 24. That then is going to be built out in the New Testament into what we call headship. So Adam is going to possess headship over his wife, who is called to submit to him as the church submits to Christ. So we learn uh, Ephesians 5, building on Genesis 2, that Adam is, is called, this is a high and holy calling, difficult for us sinful men, but Adam is called to provide spiritual leadership of his wife and by extension his family. So in brief, I'm trying to train my son to be a leader, protector, and provider in a distinctly biblical and christ centered way. And that is a a strongly uh, uh, historical understanding in the Christian tradition of manhood that men would lead, protect, and provide. And and Dale, just in terms of those three ideas, maybe protection still lingers as a cultural value in America in 2019. But in general, the call for men to provide spiritual leadership, let alone any kind of leadership, and then also provide for their families has very much been undercut, which is why we have to continually reassert these deeds, these duties, these roles uh, for men today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I would say so often we say and describe uh, what it means to be masculine and the duty of manhood is tied and connected unashamedly in Scripture to the gospel. And so when we think about the fluidity of the nature of gender, male and female, uh, that's not something that God uh, created and made as a byproduct. What God is doing that as an expression of a gospel truth, namely Jesus and the bride. This is what Paul teaches us. And so my concern is anything we do with the genders now gives us fluidity between Jesus and his bride, and that becomes massively problematic, I would say, uh, in terms of the gospel. And so what we're describing here, in my view, and I think what you're articulating is something that has to be uh, non-negotiable for us as Bible believers that we stand firm in these particular areas. Now, as we think about the church, and this is where my concern shifts toward, is we see certainly the culture, and it's it's no wonder that the culture would think like this, move in this direction. We would expect this in a secular uh, movement, and that, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, but what is surprising is the way in which some of these ideas are impacting the church. So how are these fluctuating cultural ideas, in your view, impacting the church 
today? I think in general, many Christians feel like they shouldn't speak up that much about the meaning of manhood. A lot of Christians don't want to cause division and trouble, and they don't want to draw fire on these issues. And I can understand those instincts at a human level, but fundamentally, we are called to build in the rubble, to build in the ruins. And that's really where we are today. We, we are in a place where many young men, for example, are entering the church, Dale, and they don't have any idea what it means to be a man. This is going to be, this is almost, uh, I won't go on record quite this strong, but this is almost the key reality of counseling and pastoral ministry in this era in church history, rebuilding men, because so few men have had a strong godly father who's invested in them and discipled them as a man. Many young men, even Christian young men, have not been discipled, are from broken homes, didn't have a strong connection with their father, don't know what it means to be a man. And so this is what I see the church especially struggling in, is recognizing the need to go right at young men, not in an angry way, not in a hectoring way, but out of love, with firmness, though, to disciple them in the rhythms of grace and in biblical manhood and to train them to be a godly young man in general, and then especially because most are called to marriage, to train them to be a, a godly husband, father, leader, protector, and provider. If we could even just start to do that, Dale, we would be massively addressing this cultural problem that is playing out all around us. Mm-hmm. And the answer then becomes the protection of the church, which is a beautiful thing when we're replicating that. And the, the beauty then of one generation living uh, in manhood as an example to future generations now becomes protective of this cultural flow and cultural influx yes. for the church really in the future, which guards the truth, which is what we love. So, so maybe the final thing we should chat about is kind of bringing this down into a very practical level and thinking about it in terms of very specific uh, application. So what are some ways that, that pastors and parents uh, might be challenged with some of these new ideas of, of what uh, many are calling toxic masculinity. So help our pastors and our parents think through some of those issues. I love that you're going there because this is really where it heads, right? Uh, How are you going to actually train and raise your children? It's not going to be theoretical. It's not going to stay in a classroom at a secular university. This is this is where the issue goes. So we've got to train our boys to be distinctively masculine. We've got to train them that it's good to be a boy. It's not a bad thing. Our culture is really in a state of misandry, uh, to quote that old Greek word. In other words, hatred of manhood, hatred of men. Just recognizing, by the way, that the culture is teaching our sons that and teaching us that is very helpful. We've got to help our sons see that it, by virtue of being a boy, they're not an idiot. They're not a goofball. They don't have no purpose. They don't need to step back with relation to girls. They actually need to step forward and be and be a leader, and we need to train them to be a leader in the mold of Jesus Christ himself, a self-sacrificial leader, in other words. So we've got to train them in the goodness of, of manhood, of, of boyhood. We've also got to show them that it's good to be mature. It's good to grow. We've got to train them in these dimensions that we've talked about already. We've got to be shaping our boys, even from a young age, to see that it's good to work, uh, it's good to provide, it's good to protect, and it's good to lead. And guess what, Dale? I mean, boys aren't going to catch this uh, by accident. This requires fathers 
who train their sons directly in this way, and this requires mothers who reinforce that teaching. We've got to recognize, though, that our boys are being pressured and influenced to stay boys forever and to not mature and to not grow up. Mm-hmm. Lastly, uh, boys are just going to get a lot of influence today uh, that's going to tell them that it's bad to be a boy, it's bad to be aggressive in particular. Let me just say a quick word as, as we're wrapping up here on that. We're seeing school shooters and public shooters crop up all around us as this society and culture wanes and disintegrates. And we have to be very clear that aggressiveness, testosterone, if you want to get down to biology, is not bad. It's sinful aggressiveness that we oppose. We have to train our boys actually in biblical terms to see that that they're shaped in the image of Christ, the warrior savior. And they are called not to be non-aggressive fundamentally, but to be aggressive for the right things in a godly way. That itself, if we will teach just that value, just that principle, is going to very much put us in the teeth of the culture. But we can't stop training boys to be righteous and virtuous and on the hunt for the good. Amen, brother. I I could not agree with the things that you're articulating there more, and we do hope it's been a ministry to you. Let me mention to you as well that Dr. Strayan has written several volumes. I'm just going to mention a couple here. Uh, One in the area specific to gender, manhood, and womanhood called God's Grand Design, uh, which is out, and you can get that book now, and it would articulate some of the things that we've been discussing today. But I also want to mention a second volume, which is coming out soon, called Re-Enchanting Humanity, and I think you'll be intrigued uh, by that work as he's looking at many of the different ways that we see uh, our understanding of anthropology and man being denigrated in the culture in, we, in which we live. And so I do hope that you'll uh, you'll get a hold of those resources. I think they'll be helpful to you, especially as we, we see this war uh, enraging in the culture around us on manhood and on how we understand people from the scriptures. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. If you want more information about biblical counseling or any of the topics that you've heard on today's podcast, I would encourage you to visit us at biblicalcounseling.com.